Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, currently really heavy powerlifter. <laughs> I run Strength Guild and uh, oh, a bunch of other stuff. So. Hey, this is Dr. Mike Nelson, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert. A whole bunch of other stuff, and I'm back home in snowy and cold Minnesota. Oh, my God, you're home. I'm actually home. I'm <laughs> actually home while well, I'm kind of sort of on a travel ban for December. So I'm only going to teach RPR Level 1 and 2 in Denver at the middle of the month. Other than that, I'm home the entire month. Woohoo! Yeah, well, it's, new it's record. holiday season, you know. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually hoping for us just to have some shoot-the-shit episodes amongst ourselves in December. Like, I'm, I'm really... Strung thin um, yeah. at work and stuff like this, and just you know, the debating and the stuff that goes on whenever you try to be a change agent, it's just it's taxing. And I kind of want oh, yeah. some downtime where we can just you know just talk shop a little. Uh, for example, Phil, you sound like you're overfed and feeling bloated. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. what's going on with you? Oh, Your man, voice I'm, I'm bloated. Oh, I am. <laughs> Everything's bloated. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to get to 290, which will be the heaviest Ooh. I've been since. Well, in a long time. So I'm at about 285. Oh, uh, wow. I'm training for this meet in January. So, yeah, everybody looks at me and is like, holy moly, you're big. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my squat feels amazing due to it. My deadlift, <laughs> eh, it's a little hard to get set up. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, I feel good. So the, the goal is I'm, I'm going to try and go for my first 800 squat. So Ooh. I'm going to open at seven. So seven's feeling pretty easy. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. And the, the goal was trying to... Get to 290. Heaviest I've been is 285. So, wow. we'll now, what see. time course? Because you were 270 not that uh, long ago, right? Not that long ago. I've been eating up for about eight weeks. Oh, so wow. Okay. I've, got until, I've got until the end of January to gain another five pounds. So, uh, you're good. Uh, yeah, so we'll see. This is where it gets tough. So, yeah. at 280 for me, it's like, oh, it takes twice as much work to add more weight. Yeah. So, yeah. shove in Anytime one more brownie. on the holidays. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, you guys, I, I was talking to, I had two students. We did a carb loading lab. I don't know if I mentioned this at all, but one of them mm. ate nine and a half grams per kg of carbs for three days. And the other one got up to 13 um, grams per kg. I mean, these guys, they're not big guys. I'm like, I don't even think that's possible on a scale of a larger mammal, you know. Uh, but they were they were saying it was so fun for the first day, <laughs> you oh, know. Yeah. And day two, it was kind of fun. And now I don't want to do that again for a long time. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I know guys who do that for weeks on end. Holy you know, holy. Kids. I'd have to have 1,650 grams of carbs. Ooh. Oh, my God. Oh. That'd be rough. That'd be rough. But you know what I'm saying? Like, um. Because they're dropping their protein a little bit, you know, and yeah. fat, of course, in order to do it because they're carb loading. But, like, the force-feeding stuff, I thought, yeah, it's not fun, oh, is yeah. it? No, you it's e anybody can eat, like, a huge one day. It's yeah. doing it that day and then the next day and the next day. 
and the one thing I had to figure out, like today's my big squat day. So basically I have to get all my food in last night because if not, Oh yeah, uh, I can't, uh, it's just, it goes bad if I wake up and try to eat a couple hours before that mm-hmm. big. So I'll just snack from in the morning. So I ate big last night and, uh, and then I won't eat really, really eat a meal until after we're done. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, listeners, imagine eating uh, you know three plates of Thanksgiving dinner and then trying to caffeinate and go to the gym with that in your belly. You know, that's good. yeah, that was, and it's just oh, it, not it going to work. Yeah. So wow. Yep. How much weight did your students gain, Lonnie, over a couple days? Do you know? Oh yes, I do. We measured all that stuff. We even <laughs> did segmental bioimpedance and looked at their arm, like their arm oh, water cool. content. Yeah, it was cool. Um, well, I, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I got the labs in my backpack. I got a great. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> but one of them was uh, five and a half pounds. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and the other one uh, was similar. I think it was similar. Um, yeah. Because they and what start- was their weight before? Like, what's their weight range? Um, these guys in pounds, um, they're like they're like low seventy kilos, like one hundred and sixty pounds. Okay. Guys. Oh, okay. So, cool. Yeah. One's a cyclist. Oh, you know. Um, I had five pounds on one hundred and seventy pound body. It's not small. No, yeah. and like I said, it was cool to to see, um, you know, with the segmental bioimpedance you, and you know the water content in there. Because you know, three grams of water stored with each gram of glycogen, all that whole yeah. thing, and and you can see it, you know, and it's yeah. it's just and it's an advanced class. So that's kind of the whole thing is we're we're exploring stuff like that. Like, can we mm-hmm. detect it? And if we don't detect it with our limited equipment, what why? You know, what control variables are at work and. It's yeah. it's just a critical thinking kind of thing, but yeah, it, it was fun, and I just it stuck in my mind. I thought about you, Phil, and I thought about Rob too when they're like, "Oh, it's not fun," you know. I don't want to do that yeah. again. I'm like, well, I, I you yeah. know, that that that's like training wheels. What <laughs> compared to what I see some of these guys do, like you said, Phil, day after day after day. Yeah, and I mean, there's a reason that right after the meets, I drop weight. I'm done at that point. It's like, oh, I'm man. done eating. I don't want to eat anymore. <laughs> yeah. So. And you're putting on that too, Lonnie. If people are getting a DEXA or more body comp measurements done on themselves, a lot of times they forget to standardize their nutrition before. Because if you went from a low carbohydrate to a high carbohydrate diet, you can swing that by many pounds. And that yeah. shows up as fat free mass because it's not fat. Oh, right. For sure. Uh, well, in fact, one of the things that's some of all the things we're exploring, right? Is yeah. we, you, we actually figured. Um, based on their carb intake, about how many grams of glycogen they had, how much they would have when they loaded. You know, if, let's say they doubled or got 2.5 times their their normal storage, and then you can actually predict the weight gain with a fair degree of accuracy. You mm. know, because of the the three grams of water for each gram of surplus yeah. glycogen, right? So, yeah, it's kind of neat. Anyway, my whole point with that was the big eats and how they um they weren't ready yeah. for it. You know. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, yep. Okay. A, cu- a couple of studies here, everybody, and then I, I guess I was remiss in saying that uh, we're going to uh, have a sort of a mini um, tutorial here. Phil's going to talk about adding 20 pounds on your deadlift in a day, potentially, potentially. Uh, but uh, two studies, one's on coffee and one is on protein. Probably not a surprise. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, this first one says why we shouldn't like coffee, but we do. Weirdly, people with a higher sensitivity to bitter caffeine taste drink more. This is from Northwestern University. It says, why do we like the bitter taste of coffee? Bitterness evolved as a natural warning system, right? So by evolutionary thinking, uh, logic, we should just spit it out if it's bitter. But as it turns out, people that are more sensitive to the bitter taste of caffeine, 
the more coffee they drink. Uh, and this is in right in line with what I'm planning to do in the spring where we're looking at different compounds in coffee and what it does to the taste and all that sort of thing. Um, let's see. A new study from Northwestern Medicine and QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute in Australia. Um, the sensitivity to this bitter taste of caffeine is a genetic variant uh, that was previously established, I guess. But it says consumers acquire a taste or an ability to detect caffeine due to a learned positive reinforcement that is the stimulation that's elicited by that caffeine. <clears throat> so in other words, normally, uh, you know, some people are more sensitive to this bitter taste, but you almost train yourself to de detect it, right? Because you get rewarded by, you know, a good gym session or some dopamine release or, you know, whatever it is. Um, this reminds me of like the movie Princess Bride where they – he, he learns to taste Iocane powder, you know, which is supposed mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. completely undetectable. Um, it says, let's see, <clears throat> there is a distinct bitter flavor to caffeine, and uh, coffee drinkers learn to associate quote-unquote good things with it, says uh, Marilyn Cornelis. She's an assistant professor at Northwestern. Um, in this study population, uh, it says the big coffee drinkers consumed low amounts of tea. Uh, and they're trying to – at first you might think, is, is it some part of their genetic taste preferences? But it says that could be just because they were drinking so much coffee. Uh, the study also found people sensitive to other bitter flavors like um, quinine, like in um, – what is it in that spritzer water stuff? Um, but um, those things um, didn't – you know, they, it didn't drive them to drink more coffee. In fact, if you're sensitive to uh, quinine, uh, then you actually avoid coffee. And it talks about how some people with certain of these genetic variants for taste <clears throat> sensitivity would avoid, like, red wine because they're, they're just too sensitive to the bitterness. Um, the findings suggest our perception to bitter tastes informed by our genetics contributes to the preference for coffee, tea, and alcohol, Cornelis said. Um, this was a sample of 400,000 men and women from the U.K., but they actually used certain techniques – and their knowledge, previous knowledge of these genetic variants from twins studies in Australia to try to get to more causality. This wasn't just, a, you know, loose correlations, I guess. Um, anyway, it says taste has been studied for a long time, uh, but we don't know the full mechanics of it, Cornelis said. So I just thought that was sort of interesting, again, because it's one of the things that I'm looking at. Um, what is the taste profile? In fact, uh, what's... We're, we're getting some of the non-disclosure <laughs> agreements back and everything from the Iron Radio listeners that are going to uh, use this brew method that we're talking about. And part of it is a taste test, right? And it'll be interesting if they detect bitterness or lack of bitterness and that kind of thing. So, I had a quick question on that, Lonnie. Do we know <clears throat> how that would possibly translate into health benefits? You know, thinking that if you're someone who genetically is maybe more predetermined to like bitter coffee, do you respond better in terms of other health profiles or blood glucose or other markers to that compared to someone who doesn't have that? Yeah, you know, that'd be that's the kind of thing where someone like you or I would have to come along and right. and relate it to health variables, right? Because this is just genes versus taste. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's I think sort that'd of... Be fascinating. It is. And I think that's sort of the niche that I'm trying to pursue in, in my lab, right, is look at the food science, but marry it with actual nutrition science, you yeah, know, or health. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I'm not going to get too deep in the, into the genomic side of things, but yeah, what are the t- what you taste in coffee? Um, you know how how do how does coffee taste, and then what does it do to your training and your sleep and all that kind of stuff? And you're right. And how do they correlate? You know for sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. This next one is from the Journal of Nutrition, a high tier journal. Uh, and I don't think it's going to surprise either of us, but you almost have to come out with this stuff on a regular basis to keep the um, hysterics down. Um, changes in kidney function do not differ between healthy adults consuming higher protein compared with lower or normal protein diets. A systematic review and meta-analysis. So this is this is literally just a couple of weeks old uh, from the Journal of Nutrition. It's from uh, DeVries and colleagues. Stu Phillips is on this on this too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So. Uh, the background, it says high-protein diets. In fact, they say higher-protein diets, and that's funny because that's something that I always made sure I said in um, the book or a presentation because if you say high-protein diets, people want to know what you mean by that. And if you say higher, you're just saying, listen, above, like, the 0.8 grams per kg, you know. But higher-protein diets are advocated for several reasons, including the mitigation of uh, sarcopenia, and a lot of our listeners know that's, of course, muscle loss with aging and whatnot. Um, but their effects on kidney function are less clear. Uh, methods, we conducted a systematic review and a meta-analysis of trials comparing high-protein, and here's higher-protein diets, and here's how they defined it. More than 1.5 grams per kg of body weight, or more than or equal to 20% of all your calorie intake, or simply more than 100 grams a day. That's how they did it. Now, more than 100, uh, 100 grams a day, that's, that's like, very typical to me. You know, that, yeah. that's not much protein. But um, I think you got to think about the size of individuals and whatnot as well. And then they compared that with people on normal to lower protein diets, and then they actually defined that as greater than or equal to 5% less energy intake from protein per day compared to the high-protein group. Okay. Uh, so relative to the high group. Uh, randomized controlled trials compared the effects on of high protein versus normal to low protein of more than four days duration on GFR, right? Glomerular filtration rate. How well do your kidneys clear, um, you know, waste products from your blood? Uh, and they looked at adults that did not have kidney disease. 2,144 abstracts were reviewed. That makes me wonder if some of mine weren't in there. Um, but anyway, then they went through and they selected some full text reviews. Um, they did some direct intervention trials, all this kind of stuff, um, as far as what they looked at. Uh, uh, here it is. Analyses were conducted using post-intervention or post-GFR, again, kidney filtration, uh, and the change in GFR from pre- to post-intervention. So sometimes they just looked at post-stuff, which is what I always looked at, right, because I just looked at people who were already eating large amounts of protein, and compared them to the lower, but uh, also they looked at, again, the change. So if they had pre- and post-data, they would look at that up or down in kidney filtration because of the of the higher protein intervention. Uh, it says there was a linear relation between protein intake and glomerular filtration rate in the post-only comparison. Um, it correlated 0.332, so what, that's about 10% of GFR being accounted for by the high protein. Um that's very much in line with what I actually saw when I was looking at this stuff uh, in the post-only kind of stuff. That you have a little bit more kidney filtration, you know. And if, in fact, if you look at it, urine outputs are quite a bit higher 
mm-hmm. uh, in people who are consuming a lot of protein. The average person might pee about 1.5 liters a day, something like that. I had some guys when I in the high protein group, they're peeing two and a half, three liters a day. You know, they so I, I'm not surprised that there's more filtration there. Um, but it says there was not a linear relation between protein intake and a change. If you know when they had the pre to post comparison, uh, so post only when they just look at that, there was uh, a significant increase in GFR. But if they look pre to post change after a, a high protein intake. Uh, there was no significant change in GFR. So they went on to say, our analysis indicates that higher protein intakes do not adversely influence kidney function on GFR in healthy adults. And again, I think that's important because how many times do you hear, you know, someone who's less familiar with the literature? It might be a health educator or a dietitian or a nurse, or I've heard, you know, various health professionals say, oh, those high protein diets, you know, all, all those meatheads and their weightlifting and this and that, they, <laughs> you know, they're killing themselves, you know, hurting their kidneys. A lot of that goes back to what's called the Brenner hypothesis, which is if you ask your kidneys to filter more, that's stress and it, it harms them. But anybody in exercise science knows better. I mean, if you ask your biceps to do more, it doesn't tear right off the bone. It hypertrophies, you know, in a healthy person. And that's kind of what what I think people are slowly coming to realize with kidney function is asking them to do a little bit more because you have a higher protein diet. If you're healthy and, you know, your um, glomerulus, your filtration apparatus in your kidneys, it's not gummed up with sugars because you're diabetic or you're not, it's not sort of blown out because of hypertension for decades. Normal kidneys, you're just asking them to filter some more. So that Brenner hypothesis was only a hypothesis. And for whatever reason, um, a lot of people just ran with this idea. You know, they looked at damaged, diabetic, hypertensive kidneys. And those, yeah, you don't want to flood a huge amount of uh, protein in those bodies. You know, that kind of azotemia, that buildup of nitrogenous substances in your blood. Yeah, now you're asking damaged kidneys to get rid of it. But healthy people, no, it's not going to yeah. hurt them. I think the Brenner hypothesis, wasn't that like 1954? Oh, it's old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like... Quite a while ago. <laughs> exactly. And I, like I said, I mean, that's it's contrary to our entire field that if you ask, yeah. if you apply a stimulus and you ask, you apply a stressor that automatically it's harmful. Well, my God, then, you know, Phil is just being unethical. He's just hurting all of his crew, you know, instead Killing of his muscles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's adaptation after a stimulus or a little bit of overload. That's the whole point of what we do. And I think if they would have just talked to an exercise physiologist, they might have had a different mindset there. I don't know. So, yeah, yet another nail in the coffin, right, that high-protein diets harm healthy kidneys. So thank you, uh, Stu Phillips and um, Michaela DeVries and all these other authors, too. So thank goodness. Okay, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Phil, and we're going to get some tips on putting 20 pounds on a deadlift more or less in a single session. So we'll be back. Stop feeling 
Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rated in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. 
you'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we are back, and we're going to magically increase your deadlift by 20 pounds in like 10 minutes here. So <laughs> first off, I'd like to say... Um, the only way to really make somebody stronger, like when I throw seminars and hell, anybody throws seminars, they all come in expecting to hit PRs. Um, the first thing I tell people is that's probably not going to happen. Um, you know, in some cases it will, but in those cases, it's usually a form issue. We can fix form issues, you know, form leaks and, and make a, a drastic increase. But as far as programming stuff, which is a lot of what I'm known for, programming takes time to show its teeth. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can't. We can't put you through a session and automatically make you 20 pounds stronger um, due to, you know, the adaptation from that one session. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah. Um, but that said, I mean, the deadlift is probably the one that I see butchered the most by people that just don't. There's not as much coaching on it, I don't think. And there's oh. not as, as, as many people that know what they're doing. There's been a lot of great tutorials on squats and things like that and uh, uh, that people can go watch. There's There's not quite as much on deadlift. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a hard lift, and it's its one of those lifts that there is no, there's basically a squat. You know, you see people go a little wider, a little narrower, but the deadlift, there's so many variations. There's high hip, low hip, wide stance, narrow stance. Uh, <laughs> you don't see that much variation in, a, in, in squat as you do in deadlift. So, I mean, the number one thing I like to do with people is explain um, some basic physics. I, I get that. And, and get to the drawing board and, you know, talk about lever arms and things like that. And we ID what each person's body's like. For me, I'm I'm really short torsoed. Like we measured my torso versus the, my leg length. And my legs from hip to, to the bottom of my foot is literally almost exactly two times as long as my torso. Mm. So wow. I've got really long legs and a really short torso. And to explain this to people, it's like if you wanted to pick up a sledgehammer, um, are you going to choke up on it, or are you going to grab it by the end of the handle? Okay. We want to yeah. do the, you know, a, a, a sledgehammer is a lot lighter if we choke up towards the end of the handle. So the same thing needs to happen in your lifts. Basically, you want to end, you want to load your your smallest lever arm with as much weight. You want to bend at the smaller lever arm more. So for me, I want to bend at the hip more because the weight is not multiplied as many times out of, as, as they would if I bend my legs a bunch. Every every inch those things bend the weight gets multiplied many more times because they're so long, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, I'm, I'm a high hip deadlifter. You know, I bend, I, I have very little knee bend, and I bend over at the waist, and that also kind of automatically puts the bar where I want it to be. If I were to bend at the legs a lot, my shoulders would be back behind the bar. We want your, your scapula right in line with the bar over midfoot and things like that. So, And if somebody was the opposite, let's say somebody's really long torsoed, and they try to barely bend at the knee, and they bend a lot at the hip, they're going to be pitched way out in front of the bar. <clears throat> so they're creating a, a, a longer lever on there. So um, that's kind of number one is we identify what kind of person you are. And then there's weird freaks out there like, you know, Ed Cohn that's they got long <laughs> arms, big hands, but he's short. So, I yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's number one, identifying what kind of person you are and where your hips should be. Um, from there, it's teaching people, and I don't know why this is so hard. But I like to I like to call a deadlift a pull and not a lift because you start thinking lift and people automatically drive off the floor 
and they're they're pulling they're lifting it up. So what we see is their hips shoot up and they get out in front of the bar. And then kind of activating the glutes and the hamstrings is is secondary. And then it's like, oh no, now I need to I need to pull back. So what I like to get people thinking about is um, right off the floor we're pulling back as soon as we can. Because if you cut, if you get caught at the knee where you're pitched way out in front of the bar, it's really hard. If I've come back from the start and by the time it reaches my knees, I'm I'm behind the bar, it's gonna be easier to lift. So right from the start of the lift, our whole goal is to get shoulders back in line with your butt. Um, and there's a weird thing that happens. It's a little hard to do over the air here, <clears throat> but if you guys are listening, um, everybody knows knee extension, knee flexion, hip extension, hip flexion. In, in a deadlift, no matter how I'm built, even me, I have a little bit of knee, knee flexion. So if we set up in a deadlift, you can do, if I tell you to extend your knees, you can do that. Now, if we set back up and I tell you extend your hips without extending your knees, you can't. So basically, if all we think about is extending our hips, the knees happen. Okay. You, know, you, mm-hmm. can, you can easily extend the knee without hip extension. It's just something that you can do. You can't extend your hips without knee extension. So the only thing I get people to worry about is extend your hips, extend your hips, extend your hips, you know, pull back. You know, and the knees are just going to happen. Because if we extend our hips without knee extension, we fall on our ass. You, you, you literally fall over. Okay. So yeah. um, that's kind of it. And then um, other than that, it's tightness in the bar. So it's something we call the uh, – I call wedging. I learned this from Pavel way back in the day. Yeah. Um, so he teaches wedging. And it's being active with the bar. So what we normally see is people come up and they, they yield to the bar. So they'll go to deadlift and they kind of squat down to it and they're loose against it. And then they pull. So all of a sudden you have no weight on the no weight in your hands, and then you get hit by whatever's on the bar, five hundred pounds or whatever. So you may be in a good position, theoretically, when we when we're looking at you set up. But because you have no weight in your hands, the minute you pull, usually you get pushed out on your toes, because all of a sudden you have zero pounds, and then you're hit by five hundred, and that pushes you out, and your hips shoot up, and then you then you have to then you're just behind the game. Oh, I see what you're saying. As opposed to like <sighs> the tension ramping up, it just yes, smacks into you. As opposed to. Yeah, yeah, you just get hit by 500 pounds. Yeah, yeah. Whereas what I like people to do is one of two things. Usually it's grab the bar high hip and we pull up on it. So let's say I have 500 bars, pounds on the bar. I'm pulling up with about 200 pounds of pressure, and then I'm slowly setting back against the bar. So I've already got that weight in my hands. <clears throat> and wedging, you can't really do it unless, like me, I need to have over 280 pounds on the bar. Because if not, if I'm wedging correctly, the bar's just going to move with less than my body weight because basically I'm getting as much of me behind the bar as I possibly can. So if it's less than your own body weight, it's going to move. Um, but we set against the bar, not down to the bar. So you're, you're pulling some weight before you pull hard. And the other way to do it is I just have people set up and they'll have them pull a little bit. Okay, give me 10% or 20%. And then once you have that, now you're tightened, now you pull hard. So basically you preload before you go hard. <laughs> um, is that like taking the slack out of the bar? People yeah, pretty much. Similar? Yep. Yep. Yeah, you're taking the slack out of the bar. Because if not, you just get hit, hit by it. You get automatically pitched on your toes. Now we're doing the opposite thing that we wanted to. Now we've created knee extension without hip extension. Now you've got this huge lever arm at the hips, and your back's loaded, and your hamstrings are loaded. Um, so, I mean, those are the main things. And then you've got weird people that I have about – sumo is all the rage right now, seemingly. Hmm. Um Seemingly, it's all the rage. It's like getting a lot of YouTube and and, and uh, Instagram play, but uh, 
one of the big uh, open powerlifting it kind of took the place of powerliftingwatch.com just did a uh, they like interviewed all the powerlifters across all federations and it was still much more of them do conventional even though it seems like a lot of people are doing sumo there is a certain amount of people that sumo fits them right I have a few lifters out of all my lifters I think I got four that pull sumo um, and this is usually people that have really long torsos because what we're trying to do again um, how do we get that really long torso to not be loaded in a, in a just a, a huge way we keep it as upright as possible so basically we put them in a squat position kind of in a wide stance squat so we have them drop their hips down push their knees apart they're getting their crotch as close to the bar as they can and then their torso straight up and down <clears throat> so we're not pitching that long lever arm over and creating multiplying that weight by a bunch of times so and again the problem with that is most people do it wrong and you see this weird uh stiff-legged deadlift sumo variation <laughs> so um Whereas a sumo, when it's done right, usually it feels like a ton off the floor and you need to fight to stay in position and then it moves and then all of a sudden it just comes up. So um, it's much more of a technical lift. There's, there's, less, there's less margin for error. Like if you mess up on a sumo, you're just done. Whereas if you mess up, like if I shoot my knees up a little bit or my hips up a little bit on a conventional deadlift, usually I can fight through it. That just doesn't happen in, a, in sumo if that bar pitches out in front of you an inch or two you're usually going to fall over, and a lot of that's due to the foot placement and everything. You're real wide, and usually toes pointed out to the side some, so you don't have as much uh, mm. forward and rear balance. You know, So if you get pushed forward a little bit, you're just going to fall. Um, that makes sense. So those are kind of the main things. I mean, so loading the bar, you know, learning to wedge against the bar, or preloading the bar, or taking the slack out of the bar, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then just identifying where's the right position for you. Most people, from what I've seen, are deadlifting way too low-hipped. So what I like people to do is grab the bar, and no matter how they're built, we start dropping their hips until their knees start shooting forward. Um, and once their knees stop, start, start pushing forward, we stop them there, and then we have them set their back. So And now they can pull back. So what you see is usually most people set way too low, and they've got a bunch of knee extension that goes clear out over the bar. And this works great when it's light. The bar kind of travels in this path around the knees and then back up. What happens when it's heavy is... They pull, and their hips shoot slowly, and then the bar starts moving. Um, because you can't pull back if your knees are pushed out over the bar right from the start. So basically, we want to be able to pull back right from the start. And uh, that's kind of that's kind of the, the gist of it as far as adding, adding 20 pounds. It's usually just fixing a form issue, which a lot of people have them. Yeah. So. No, it, this is one thing where, uh, admittedly, like you said, I, I love audio. But it's harder to do this without it's some real visual. Hard to do it without little pictures and stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, or little videos. But I mean, if anybody wants to do this, just hey, come to my facility. But uh, now, so I know you already touched on this in part here. But so one of the things that I remember that you were talking about was like I'm I'm not good at deadlifting. I never was, yeah. you know. But yeah. I never I never put a lot of time into it. That's not saying I would ever be good, mm -hmm. even if I did. <laughs> but yeah. There seemed to be – my understanding was isn't there some controversy about like sitting back – like once you get set up, like sitting back into your hips and actually not just having vertical motion but almost like a 45-degree angle backwards. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, we want as much as you behind the bar as we can. Behind the bar, sense. right. Okay, yeah. And that's why I said – and that's why I said it's uh, – that's where the wedging comes in and things like that. And it doesn't work until there's more than you on the bar. So we need that big counterbalance in front of you. Counterbalance, the heavier, yeah. Yeah, the heavier it gets. Like when I have a 700 bar on the bar, I can sit way back. I can, I can lean back against the weight. 
and pull because I've got 700 pounds in front of me not letting me fall over. Right. If I have if I have 225 on the bar, when I pull back real hard, I'm going to take I have to take a step back. So we want you to use you. You know, you're using your own body weight to 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 help lift the weight. So yeah, we that helps. Get you back behind the bar. Basically, we set up. We get tight. We pull that slack out of the bar, and from there, it's just literally I just try and keep people think. Get your shoulders behind your butt. That's your only goal. You know, mm-hmm. if you get your shoulders behind your butt, you made the lift. That's and I any lift. And it's it, it's helpful for me with people to just teach them that you can break them down. Any lift is the creation of lever arms and then the erasure of lever, of lever arms. Now we need to figure out how to do that in an efficient fashion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So we don't want a bunch of oh, you've got a bunch of extra, and you'll see this in the squat where people have a bunch of extra hip hip extension or flexion. They're they're bending at the hip too much and they're not bending at the knees enough. So they they think they're going low, but what's going low is their shoulders, not their butt. <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we break that down. Now, let's, how do we, for your body type, how do we do this as efficiently as possible? So, it does, it makes a lot of sense to me about, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, they think about joints and muscles instead of like, like yours, like resistance arms, you know? Yeah. Like I, when I had a student the other day, he goes, oh, you mean like, don't um, hold your gym – don't walk around campus with your gym bag at arm's length. You would bend your elbows and bring it closer to you. I said, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the idea yes. of a resistance arm, you know. Yeah. And it's it's just – it's fascinating to me how you guys will – you'll take that and, you know, you can have um, – regardless of the number of plates on the bar, uh, that can be much lighter or much heavier depending on how much you change the resistance arm. Right, the yeah. the distance from the the pivot point from the fulcrum to the actual bar, you know, I yeah. I, I think oh, that's yeah. fascinating. That's that's so clever. I don't know. And that's what it's all about. I mean, it, when you're talking about now, now we need to talk about a strength athlete versus like a uh, physique athlete. If I've got a physique athlete, and we're looking to do as much uh, building as we can, and our goal isn't move as much weight as we can, but it's potentially do as much damage to the tissue as we can. We're probably going to load up those long lever arms. We can use less weight, less weight on the bar, but it's going to be more resistance because we're mm-hmm. – it's like doing a dumbbell fly versus a dumbbell bench. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're doing a dumbbell fly, the only reason it's harder is because you've created a really long lever arm. Yeah, it stays uh, at arm's length Yeah, throughout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're creating a long lever arm for your pec, so 20 pounds feels like 50. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. So for somebody like me and my assistants work even, what do I need to do? I probably don't need to attack my strengths. I need to work on my long legs. <laughs> right. <laughs> and make sure yep. they're strong. Right. So uh, yeah, that's, things like that. You know, yeah. it's it's almost like the concept of a, of a cheap buzz. You know, like you yeah. could use less weight and get a similar amount of tension on that muscle for growth. Yeah. You know, for, for, for the well, bodybuilders. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, that's like the difference. My torso is – I don't remember the numbers. Let's say my torso is 24 inches long and my freaking legs are 48, just for easy math. For me, a good morning is really easy mm. because in a good morning, the weight is loaded on my shoulders and I'm bending at the hip. Mm-hmm. So I have I've good morning 675 pounds. If I oh, tried God. to do a good morning uh, – if I tried to do a 675-pound reverse hyper with the load down on my ankles, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, you know? right. Even though essentially I'm moving at the same joint. Right. Because such a long, long resistance yeah, arm. Different yeah. lever arms. Yes, yeah. the, the weight is tripled you know, because the lever arm is so much longer. Mm-hmm. So what do I need to do in, my, in my, my assistance work? I need to attack that long lever arm, make that stronger. So, yeah. Um, 
but that's kind of where we do. I mean, we come after the only way that I can really add 20 pounds to a lift is fix an issue that you didn't know you had. So, (laughs) and just maximize you for your own leverages and uh, your mistakes you're doing in your form. So, yeah, I I remember when I was uh, just looking at different slides and whatnot and, and teaching some of the basics of this, thinking about the, I would think about a horizontal distance, you know, between the joint and the bar, you know, and how you're trying to, like, if you look at a photograph from the side, you know, and how you're trying to minimize that, that resistance arm, you know, and it just makes the whole thing easier. Well, that's the same thing why you saw in like equipped powerlifting, um, why they took the really wide stance and they drive their knees out. They're able to shorten the distance between the knees and the hips. Yep. Yep. So there's less of a lever arm. You know, and they're stopping just at parallel. You know, you're, you're creating as few lever arms as you can. You want everything in your body, every joint you want it as close to the center of gravity as it can possibly be, while completing the lift under the rules mm-hmm. that are that are there. So, yeah. I, I just think that's, that's the kind, kind of thing. Yeah, so few people, um, I, I mean, other than competitive powerlifters, would really think about this stuff. You know, yeah. I don't think bodybuilders would think about this stuff for the most part, you know, like getting yeah. fl- as flat as you as you can against the bar, you know, things like that. And yeah. just the enormous performance advantage that that that, you know, imbues. You yeah. Know, so, well, and that's why, honestly, basically, we're always looking to make our our main lifts for me, squat, bench, deadlift, make those as easy and efficient as possible. And then all of our assistance lifts are usually as hard as they can possibly be. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, look at a stiff legged deadlift versus a regular deadlift. We're purposely putting the bar way out in front of us, mm-hmm. you know, and creating a long lever arm, uh, things like that. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're we're attacking weaknesses with with really hard lifts. So, right, that's cool. How do you know for um, like foot stands? So, for example, recently, like last May, um, I did a session with uh, Jay Ashman down in uh-huh. Kansas City. So, yeah. check him out if you're in that area, yeah. and. I have tried like all sorts of different deadlift variations, and he had me try one where your heels are almost together. They're uh-huh. externally rotated, similar, kind mm-hmm. of almost similar to what you do, Phil. Yeah. And the first time I looked at it, I went, "That looks just dumb." But yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I'll, I'll try it. You know what, yeah. what? You know what the heck? And I tried it, and I'm like, "Oh wow, I can get out of the way of my knees more because yes. my femurs are so freaking long." Yes, and that's. Um, was that kind of more of a special generally, case, I would assume? Well, generally people like myself and you who have really long legs, really long femurs, we're going to be narrower stanced. It gives our knees somewhere to go. Yeah. We can kind of push them out a little bit. We're yeah. narrower stanced and we're more high-hipped. Yes. And you have people, now we start going the other way, and you've got somebody with shorter femurs, shorter legs, longer torso. They're going to be lower-hipped and a wider yep. stance. They have yeah. a wider base, and they're going to drive off the floor with their quads. They kind of turn the deadlift into a squat, per se. So, And usually with us, with me and you, the weight's going to be really light off the floor. And where it's going to get hard a little bit is at lockout. Um, and that's because we're so bent at the hip. Our hamstrings are strung tight off the floor. We get a lot of drive off our floor. We don't get much with our quads, but we get a lot of pull with our hamstrings off the floor. We get it to the knees. Now they're loose. Mm. You know? So we're finishing out. Whereas people that are... Uh, that are lower hipped and shorter femured off the floor, they get a lot of quad drive off the floor. Sure, but it's but it's hard. It's hard to break the weight and get it moving. Once they get it moving, it gets to the knees. Boom! It's just able to lock out. They can activate their glutes the minute it crosses their knees. Yeah, um, we're able to activate our glutes off the floor. Um, so you've got those big muscles just just 
pushing hard off the floor, and then it, everything kind of gets slack at the knee. This is sort of like sort of like the um, conventional versus sumo thing. It's the resistance arc, right? Like yeah. you know how some yeah. like the whole idea of a Nautilus cam is it makes it harder or lighter in one part, you know, of the yeah. of the range of motion, and that's what you guys are doing. It's funny it, to me because you're doing it with just dead weight, just barbell, you know. Yeah. But the way yeah. that you set up and the and the choice of movement. You can mm-hmm. actually change the resistance in that, uh, you know, in that um, range of motion. You know, the resistance arc, if you will. That's- and that's where somebody like what Mike's doing and things like that with the narrower stance. Like a lot of my time is usually spent doing rack work mm. because I know I'm strong off the floor. I can it flies off the floor. Yeah, that makes it's sense. From, it's from mid shin knee up, so I'll spend a lot of time mid shin below the knee, things like that, getting strong there because um, the floor strength is there. Because my hamstrings are strong, tight. Yeah. So work on your weakness. Yeah. Mecha- yeah. Mechanically. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, it's yeah, either that or even get faster off the floor. So <laughs> yeah, because that's what surprised me when I did uh, test of Max. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, it came off the floor much faster than what I had been used to. Yeah. And then about three-ish, maybe four-inch, like just about a little bit above mid shin. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh my god, I just ran into a brick wall. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, I was and like, that's, "Whoa, that's different." <laughs> that's why I used I used to judge all my openers off what I could hit at mid shin. Yeah, yeah. Because if I can hit it at mid shin, that's the hardest spot for me. Yep. It's you know four or five inches off the floor. It comes off the floor real good. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's kind of where it's at. You, you're basically strung tight like a drum off the floor, and then all of a sudden, whoa! Now everything's loose. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's just another case of just different different people, different lever arms, and so yeah. So to wrap up, um, when we talk about you know sort of tongue in cheek, you know, put twenty pounds on your deadlift in a day, have you ever seen that happen? Like somebody come in and like your their form's atrocious, and you work with them, and they really do. Oh now, yeah, I know yeah. that's relative. No, had, it's obviously relative yeah. to their baseline weight. <laughs> For you sure, know. no, we've had people come in all the time that automatically hit. We adjust something, they hit it. The problem is. Uh, even a form change is hard because what happens is let's say I make a drastic form change and 10 minutes later we go really heavy mm. you revert back to old movement patterns when things get hard mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. basically now we, we need to practice that new movement pattern make it that habit because you're gonna you're when, when when things get tough we revert back to just what we know so yeah, yeah. and that's where it's gonna come into okay now you need to go practice this new form and get used to it to where that's now that's automatic. You need to make that your new automatic. So, but yeah, definitely seen it in, in squat and deadlift. I mean, where people come in and hit hit all time PRs. So, and yeah. I don't know half that. I honestly think that half the time when people come into my place and hit a PR, it's less to do with form and more to do with environment. Oh sure, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, they're amped up. You know, yeah, all that stimulus coming in. You know, yeah. new people, so, heavy metal. Yeah, we've got heavy metal donuts and a bunch of people looking at you. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds Perfect. like a t-shirt. Heavy yeah. metal donuts and a bunch of people looking at you. Yeah. Yep. Um, I just have one last quick question. What do you do with uh, grip stuff? Do you force people to go double overhand for a while? Do you let them use a mixed grip? Do you generally we go look double at discrepancy overhand. between them? Generally, we go double overhand as long as we can. Okay. So like oh. a totally brand new person, we're always double overhand. And I start people off light. Yeah, you know, I'm not taking a new person. Okay, we're boxing. You know, <laughs> uh, it's over. It's usually with a totally new person. It's it's at least three months before we test a max. But what yeah. we do is go. 
we go double overhand until they can't. And then we start switching. And even after that, every day we go double overhand until we get to a point in our warm-ups where, okay, we need to switch. Um, like me, I'll go in and, and deadlift and I'm double overhand until, okay, that's tough for today. Now switch it up. Because if we get your double overhand grip to get better, um, your drift grip's going to get stronger. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the average person, I just tell them to do whatever's comfortable, really. But sometimes I'll have people switch it up, like, okay, go right hand over, left hand under, now vice versa. Me, because of my bicep surgeries, I, I just have one way I have to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'll have people switch it up. and uh, But usually you'll find your comfortable grip, which one works for you as far as a competitor goes. And if they're yeah. competitor, find out which one, now you stick with that. Because you need to make that your normal. Um, I don't need you walking up the platform, which hand am I going to put under? You, know? <laughs> you need to know that. So, for starters. Uh, but no, but no matter what, I always have people like all our warm ups are done double overhand. So we stay that there as long as we can. And then I got a few people that are hook gripping. So I've got one girl that's amazing. She's she should be pulling six hundred in January double wow. overhand hook grip. So Jesus. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah, it's like I understand the physics of hook grip, but I know some freaks like Lane Norton that don't practice it and will deadlift yep. seven hundred hook grip and no problem, but. Uh, it just feels horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like the highest I got when I blew my second bicep, I decided, okay, I'm going to go hook grip for as yeah. long as I can during recovery. And I made it to 650, and that's Oops. all I could do. Yes. Um, but I've got short thumbs. I've got big, meaty palms and uh, short thumbs. That's so not going to help. Just, yeah. My thumb would pop out. Um, so I just couldn't get past that, and the pain was just, oh, man, that's not fun. Weightlifters are crazy. So Yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, if you can do it, I think it's a very viable lift. I think it's probably, I mean, honestly, if we look at it, it's probably anatomically better for you. Totally, yeah. <laughs> you know? But, yeah. you know, now we, anatomically better in the real world, have to meet somewhere. And yeah. if I want to move as much weight as possible, I probably can't do that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I always think that's the contrast, too, because physics will tell you, According to physics, what is the most efficient path to move the bar? And everyone will pretty much agree on what that is. Yeah. But then you throw in lifting experience and especially anatomical differences. And maybe you've always pulled conventional. So sumo, you just can't get your hips wide enough, even though yes. that may be the best thing by yes. physics. Yes. I think that's where the art of coaching is, is how close can we get you there but we don't want you to be in pain we don't want you to rip up your acetabular surface either for sure yeah i mean i have people that probably should lift sumo but they don't have the hip mobility yeah so okay well we can't do that you know so we're gonna do this we're gonna get you as close as we can for your personal body you know yeah so yeah no that's good tips i appreciate that that's awesome no worries if anybody ever wants to come out just come out drop me a line our facility is open to anybody so you can come out for a day and lift with us. You know, to me, this is just a really good example. It's sort of just learning efficiency. I mean, you can look at slides and pictures and videos and try to, and you could probably improve your form in a slow incremental way, or you could just go ask someone, like, Phil, just show yeah. me that and just cut yeah. cut to the chase, <laughs> yeah. you know, and save yourself months of frustration. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Okay. Good All stuff. Right, guys. Have a good awesome. one. Awesome. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls 
in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, in their thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.